We thank you so much for this weekend that we've had with Daniel. Uh, we thank you for the encouragement that we've all felt as he shared. Um, thank you for encouraging him. Thank you for encouraging us. We thank you for the training we received. Uh, we thank you for your leading in this process. Uh, we ask that you just continue to confirm in his heart, in our hearts, in our minds, as we process um, your, your calling of him to Calvary Church. It's our desire, of course, as a church to be reaching our communities, to be reaching out into all of North New Jersey, to be reaching out around the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we pray that you would bless our plans, plans that you have laid on our hearts, plans that we're pursuing. Uh, we pray that you would bless the ministries as they get off to a start this fall. And uh, may you cause us to walk faithfully before you, uh, to constantly be doing ministry prayerfully, and to be trusting you for the results. And we know that they are all in your hands. And we pray this morning that you would also continue to teach us about the kingdom of God, its expansion, that you would change our attitudes if they need to be changed this morning, and that you would help us to understand our role in the kingdom better. And we pray these things for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, we're continuing our study in the Gospel of Luke this morning. And uh, we're actually hitting my two favorite parables that Jesus ever told. And uh, that's the parable, <clears throat> the parable of the mustard seed and the parable of the leaven. And of course, we're going to go much farther than that in our text this morning. But I wanted to give you a brief update, status report, really, if you will, on these parables that Jesus told 2,000 years ago. So according to the most recent mission research from the Center for the Study of Global Christianity and Joshua Project and a few other sources, the World Christian Encyclopedia, these things, the stats I'm going to share with you are, are very current from 2020, some from 2010, and not all the analysis has been completed. But just a few things that you might need to know and that should be encouraging to you is that uh, the population, let's talk about population for a minute, the world population is about 7.8 billion people, growing at a rate of 1.2% as of 2010. And out of that world population of 7.8 billion, 2.3 billion would claim to be Christian. So that's about 33%. The next largest uh, block would be Muslims, who would claim 1.6 billion adherents, about 23%. And perhaps the statistics that's most important to us is how many of those people who claim affiliation with Christianity would be considered Christ followers or evangelicals or born-again believers, or whatever term you choose to, to use, and of that Christian population, it would be 950 million. And so basically, 12.2% of the world are true Christ followers. That's enormous, actually. Now, the Center for the Study of Global Christianity uh, continues to predict that by 2050, uh, we're going to have 3.4 billion adherents to Christianity. And when you look at annual growth rates uh, through 2010, and, and you can talk about growth rates at a lot of levels, but we're talking about everything that's involved, like natural growth rates, as well as conversion. The Christian growth rate overall is 1.3%, and the Muslim growth rate is 1.9%. Of course, that includes political aspirations as well in that particular group. But uh, the growth rate for Christ followers is 2.4%. That's, and that's double the growth rate of the population, which is only 1.2%. That's amazing. And also, if you go back and you look at how the percentage of world population of true Christ followers has grown over the years, these estimates have been around for a long time uh, by researchers. And that is from the time of Christ to 1900. Okay, so that's a huge you know, piece of of time, basically would have grown from, let's just say, 0%, right, because Jesus just came, um, to 2.5% of the world population are followers of Jesus Christ. Then from 1900 to 1970, it doubled to 5% of the world population truly confessed Christ. Then from just 1970 to the year 2000, it rose to 11% of the world population. And then just in the last 
10 years, that's grown to 12.2%. And so we see that the gospel is spreading rapidly and successfully around the world. Now, of course, Christians aren't distributed evenly around the world. And so if we talk about it in terms of people groups, uh, one of the best resources for that is a group called Joshua Project. They track the progress of the gospel among different people groups. According to their research, there are 17,000 distinct people groups in the world, 17,000. Others will have a little higher number, but that's theirs. And according to the research they have, 10,000 of those 17,000 groups have been reached with the gospel. And of course, they have standards on what they determine is reached. But the interesting fact about this to me is that of those remaining 7,000 people groups, 6,500 of them are all in South Asia, in India, in that world. And the other 500 are in East Asia and in that world. And it's actually conceivable to finish up, if you will, reaching the 7,000 people groups with the gospel in the not too distant future. In fact, it's so doable that mission agencies and organizations and churches and individual Christians and those from other places than even our country are so eager to get it done that 99% of what's left is targeted. So God is mobilizing his church around the world to complete the task of world evangelization. That is exciting news. You see, Jesus was right when he told those parables, and this just gives you an idea of the penetration of that leaven. This gives you an idea of how high that mustard plant has grown. So please turn your Bibles to Luke 13, beginning in verse 18, or turn in your worship folders to where I printed it for you. But in this passage, this large passage, we're going to listen to Jesus teach about the kingdom of God from its inception, from him coming, to its completion. And so we'll just begin with these two right here. He said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It's like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made their nest in its branches. And again, he said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It's like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leaven. You see, the kingdom of God has come with Jesus Christ the Messiah. And it has been growing ever since he came. And soon, it will take over the world. So our passage this morning is going to teach us that we as Christians should be optimistic about the kingdom. And we should be resolute in urging others to enter the kingdom that Jesus has brought and to enter right now into that kingdom and enjoy its blessings forever. And in this passage, Luke gives us three central teachings about the kingdom. In verses 18 to 21 that we already read, we learn about its powerful growth in the world. And in verses 22 to 30, about how you get in to the kingdom and who will be rejected. And finally, in verses 31 to 35, the pivotal event, which of course is Jesus' cross and resurrection. So we begin with this parable of the mustard seed. And the first topic, really, as Jesus teaches about the kingdom is that it's powerful, and it's growing. It's his kingdom. He empowers it. That's why it's so successful. What shall I compare to the kingdom of God, and to what shall I compare it? It's like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made their, made their nests in its branches. So referring to the mustard seed is a proverbial way of referencing something extremely small, like this unique seed that supposedly you know, becomes this great giant plant, eight to, eight to 12 foot tall bush, and you might even call it a tree, because birds can nest in it. And it grows beyond all seeming expectations. It's a common image that was used at the time. And, but the power of this tiny seed is eventually seen in the growth of the tree. It's so large that the branches actually can support birds. So we learn a few things about this simple little parable about the kingdom right away. And that is, is that the kingdom of God is going to grow, did grow powerfully after Jesus' death and resurrection. He came preaching the kingdom of God. That was just its beginning. In John chapter 12, Jesus said, 
about himself that the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And truly, truly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains by itself alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. That's where we are in the history of the kingdom. The kingdom of God, secondly, also is going to include many, many people from among all the peoples of the world, as the birds in the parable suggest, according to stock prophetic understanding of imagery. Then the kingdom of God, third of all, is going to be a place of protection and rest and shade for its members, both now and forevermore. And perhaps one of the most surprising aspects of this image is that Jesus chose this one. Because the more common image to have chosen would have been a a stately cedar tree, which is also used in Scripture to speak about the kingdom of God. But he purposefully chose this image to teach us perhaps that the kingdom of God would not come all at once, but that it would have a humble beginning and that it would grow more slowly over time. The common expectation, of course, was this cataclysmic appearance of the kingdom. But Jesus uses this image to say that, well, you know, the kingdom may look small now. It may look insignificant. It may look like to his disciples that what we're doing here is pretty insignificant. But it's going to change very rapidly. And eventually it would become a universal kingdom under the Messiah, Jesus Christ himself just as predicted in the prophets and alluded to specifically in Ezekiel 17, which is a very interesting image here. I'll read it to you. But Jesus took the phrase that he uses here from this section of Scripture, and he changes the image to talk about a mustard seed on purpose. So here it says, The Lord God sa- the Lord says, Thus says the Lord God, I shall also take a sprig from the lofty top of the cedar and set it out. I shall pluck from the topmost of its young twigs a tender one, and I shall plant it on a high and lofty mountain. On the high mountains of Israel I shall plant it, that it may bring forth boughs and bear fruit and become a stately cedar. And birds of every kind will nest under it, and they will nest in the shade of its branches. And all the trees of the field will know that I am the Lord, and I bring down the high tree, exalt the low tree, dry up the green tree, and make the dry tree flourish. I am the Lord, I have spoken, and I will perform it. And so Jesus changed that image to talk about how it is that he would extend the kingdom when he came preaching it and gave that mission to his apostles and to his church. Then we get to the kingdom of the parable of the leaven. It's the same idea of power. So what shall I compare the kingdom? It's like the leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. It's another illustration of the same truth, the power and the growth of the kingdom. So those of you who may not know, leaven is like an older piece of dough that's already fermented and it's added to new dough and left overnight. And in the morning, the whole batch is infected, completely leavened. Uh, It's about power that at first is imperceptible. You mix it all together, stare at it, doesn't do much. You stare at it for a few hours, still not doing anything, right? But by tomorrow morning, it's going to look completely different and be astonishing to you, actually. The three measures of the meal that are used here in our terms is about 50 pounds of flour, and it would have been considered at the time the largest amount of flour that a woman could need uh, for her guests and feed about 100 people when the bread was fully baked. Now, often leaven is used as a negative image in Scripture. It's used often to speak about the spread of sin. But here, it's a positive image, and it's about the spread of the gospel and the power of the growth of the kingdom. And the implication is obvious. The kingdom of God is going to eventually penetrate the whole world, all of it. And so Jesus' first items in discussing the kingdom of God with his disciples and Luke in his presentation to us as his church is a powerful growth of the kingdom. We should be optimistic when we read these words of Jesus. Oh, they're so short, it's so easy to skip over these things. But you know what Jesus says here is true. What he said has already come true. We're seeing the gospel penetrate the very corners of the earth and some of the remotest places on the planet. And it's coming true as we live out and serve the kingdom ourselves. 
and the final day is not that long off. It makes me wonder why it is, maybe you've noticed this too, is why is it that so many Christians, and even us ourselves sometimes, why is it that we're so pessimistic at times about the advance of the kingdom, so negative about evangelistic motivation and how we try to motivate ourselves or motivate other people through rallying and appealing and, and guilt motivation and all these things. The way we talk sometimes as Christians makes me wonder if we actually believe what Jesus said. Do we believe what he was talking about? That this is really happening? That this is what he came to do? Or that somehow the advance of the kingdom is up to us? It's the power of God that's at work. And regardless of the reasonings, when people give you those negative things and those negative thoughts about the kingdom, just stop up your ears and stop listening to fools. Open your ears and listen to Jesus. Jesus is clear. He said the kingdom has come. He said it's growing. And he said it will soon take over the world. Listen to Jesus. And as I already mentioned, these are my favorite parables of Jesus. And we, we proclaim the gospel, you see, to other people. What's happening is the mustard seed tree now sprouts a new bud. Shoots come out. New branches get formed. The, the trunk gets strengthened. When we tell people about the gospel of the kingdom, it's like the yeast is making its pathway through the dough. And eventually, it's going to rise and expand. When God saves sinners more birds come to rest in its branches and enjoy the blessings of the kingdom. So I'd like us to think about what are our opportunities to share the gospel of the kingdom with people and how might we create more of them. But you know, here is the challenge. And that is, we're going to have to open up our schedules. Because if your schedule is like my schedule, it's full. There's no more room. But we're going to have to open up our schedules. We're going to have to shift priorities if we want to reach more people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, because doing the same things over and over again, it's not going to get you any different results. Why do we think that? You have to do different things if you want different results. And so what are your opportunities? How can you create more of them? And we should really be optimistic about the kingdom. Maybe this is the only application you'll take home today. I'm satisfied with that. Because I do think that there are a number of Christians, and this church isn't unique in that sense. It's true all around the world, in places I've been, that pessimism comes into our minds. And it can infect us as a body where we're no longer optimistic about the kingdom. And maybe you just simply need your attitude adjusted so that it becomes biblical, so that it follows Jesus and what he says, and not what you see, and not what you feel, and not what other people tell you who aren't repeating what is here in Luke. Well, the second topic about the kingdom is entering and rejection from it. <clears throat> Jesus is continuing on his way to Jerusalem, as it's noted here. Remember back in chapter 9, 51, Luke makes a big shift in the gospel presentation, and Jesus sets his face resolutely to go to Jerusalem to finish his work, the reason he came, to die for sinners. Well, here we get mentioned the journeying to Jerusalem. Again, he's still on that journey. It's a long journey. Really, he's on a teaching tour, taking this time getting to Jerusalem, because he's stopping at a lot of places along the way to teach people about the kingdom. And Luke, in this section of his gospel, gives us a lot of Jesus' teaching. Now, we don't know what town he's in when all this transpires, but in verses 22 to 27, there's this teaching opportunity, and he teaches about striving to enter into the kingdom now. And so we read in verse 22, he went on his way through towns and villages teaching, and here's the phrase, journeying toward Jerusalem. That's a reminder to the reader, a reminder to you and me. Oh, yes, he's still going there. You know, you might get lost in all this teaching, but Jesus has a purpose on where he's going in this storyline. He's on his way to Jerusalem. And, of course, we'll talk about what he's going to do there when we get to verse 31. But then in verse 23, And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able to. 
when once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer to you, I do not know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, well, we ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. So someone asks him an ever-popular question. You know, there are a lot of these in Luke, like these ever-popular questions. You know, common questions that human beings ask, common questions that religious people ask, common questions that we ask. And this is a very popular question even today. So how many people, Jesus, are going to get saved? Is it going to be a lot of people, or is it going to be a few people? And sometimes this question, especially among the Jewish people of the day, is really more about the degree of blessing, because there's this assumption. It's not unique to them, because I think we have it too. There's this assumption that, well, pretty much everybody's going to get saved. So really the question is, you know, more about levels of blessing. Now, of course, it depends on how you want to look at the question, right? When you ask, is it going to be a few people that are saved, or what is it? Well, what is few? Does that mean in, in comparison to how many are not going to be saved? How many would be damned, in other words? So if we, like, compare the numbers, is that a few or a lot? Or if we don't do the comparison, you know, is it just in what's expected? Is, are, you know, are, are there going to be a few people saved compared to our expectations or a lot? And if you uh, know your Bibles, you know in Revelation chapter 7, this is what's seven, this is what said, all these things I looked and behold a great multitude which no one could count from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands and they cry out with a loud voice saying, salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. That sounds like a lot of people, because you can't count them. So it just depends on what you're referring to. So Jesus, as you might expect, does not answer the question directly. That's predictable. Uh, you know, no surprise to us. Maybe if we ask better questions, he'd give clearer answers. But anyway, it's because something much more important these people should be considering, and we should be considering as readers of Luke. It's not questions about other people. Are you going to be in the kingdom? That's the question of most importance, is making sure that you'll enter the kingdom. And so Jesus tells people to strive to enter by the narrow door, or we could expand the description of the door. It's the narrow and soon-to-be-shut door. That's what door we're talking about, the narrow and soon-to-be-shut door. And the narrowness of that door seems to imply that, well, yeah, a few are going to enter, but more to the point, it's that the narrowness refers to the specificity, to the difficulty of entering. Because you see, there's only through Jesus Christ can you enter into the kingdom of God. There's no other way into the kingdom. Human religions, that's what they are. They're made up by people. They're sponsored by demons. And they're all over the world. And they're all based on human effort in some form or other. And they don't give glory to the eternal Son of God, Jesus Christ. So they're not an entryway. You may think it is, may feel good to you, but it's not an entry point. You're not getting in. The door is narrow. No other way, there's no other religion, there's no other spirituality, there's no other practice, there's no other ritual that you can perform to get into the kingdom. But it takes a lot of effort. Why? Because it's not based on works. It's because it takes a lot of effort to listen to Jesus, to shut out all those false ways where people will tell you, oh, this is the way. But Jesus made it very clear that you have to have faith in him and him alone. He said in John chapter 10, I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he shall be saved and he shall go in and out and find pasture. In other words, he'll have a wonderful, abundant life in God. And then later on in John chapter 14, Jesus said, I am the way. There is no other way. I am the way, the truth, the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. That's why the door is narrow. It's very narrow. There's only one person, and that's through Jesus Christ. And we'll talk more about how that works later on. But so these people that are talking to Jesus in our storyline, they should spend more time, or they should spend a lot less time 
asking these general questions that don't really mean a whole lot, and they should probably ask more personal questions that impact their own lives and their own destiny. Jesus is telling them that he doesn't accept the opinion that's common out there that basically, you know, all, most all Jews are going to be in the kingdom. He doesn't accept that position. So the same is true for today. The general opinion out there is that, oh, most people are going to go to heaven. I mean, just go interview, your, interview people. See what they tell you, right? I mean, just ask them if they think they're going to heaven. I mean, as long as you're not a wicked person, you're fine, right? I mean, just watch, watch, you know, whatever streaming service you're attached to. Watch the shows, right? I mean, somehow they, when they die, they all end up in this great heaven place. I don't know how that works, but they do. You know, read, you know, read stories. Read what people say. It's, the general impression is that, well, everyone's going to get there, you know? And, but that is not what Jesus taught. And Jesus taught the truth. Even more to the point, in this original situation that we're talking about for these people, the narrow door gets even narrower. Because the narrowness relates to the time frame for those hearers. And perhaps the real original meaning for these people is that the door, the opportunity, is right in front of them while Jesus is there speaking. And it's very limited. And that door is closing fast, and they should decide to get in before it gets too late. He's telling the people to seize the moment while he's there. If you just look back in Luke chapter 13, verses 8 and 9, in that parable we looked at at the end, and Jesus said, let, that, let the tree alone for this year too, speaking about his last year of ministry, until I dig it and put fertilizer around it. And if it bears fruit, great. But if not, you can uproot it and throw it away. Well, this story and the whole banquet that's being described has immediate significance to the immediate audience. This is Jesus' last year among them. Even though, of course, he's primarily talking about things looking ahead to the final day in his return, the original audience, the time was really, really short. They had to believe on Jesus while he was there. And we might ask ourselves, I mean, how much more time do you actually think you have? I mean, no one in this room knows the moment when God is going to shut the door on the life. You see, the overall picture here is that the kingdom of God then is compared to a banquet in a great hall. And the Lord Jesus is the head of the house. And he's soon going to shut that door at the appointed time. And when he does, there are going to be a lot of people left outside who waited too long in their deliberations. And at that point, there's no more opportunity. There's no access. That door's not being reopened. People don't have an opportunity to change their mind. Jesus is going to say he doesn't even know where they're from, meaning belong, who do you belong to? You don't belong to God. You don't have any status in the kingdom. Who are you? It's a phrase of rejection that he has no intimate knowledge of who they are. And they protest in shock. It's like, think of the original ones. I mean, you taught in our town, Jesus. We ate dinner with you. Don't you remember who we are? But you see, these are shallow and meaningless claims because these people, they're just familiar with Jesus. They're not followers of Jesus. There's a big difference. They're grasping at straws of discipleship, if you will, never having true fellowship and true obedience with Jesus Christ. It's like so many people today that we know, isn't it? I mean, many claim to know Jesus, but you start asking about that claim, they're just sort of familiar with him. But they are not truly following him. Maybe that's you. Are you familiar only, or are you a follower? And then Jesus repeats the final rebuke. He quotes Psalm 6 here, commanding his enemies to leave. Go away from the door. You're not welcome here. And he has confidence in the Father's will and support of this whole thing, as he quotes Psalm 6, verse 8. Well, then he goes on to teach about those who've entered, and he contrasts them with those who are rejected in verses 28 to 30. He says, in that place, talking about these people who are departing, there's going to be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. And people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God, and behold, some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. 
So this, this banquet in the kingdom of God is going to include wonderful fellowship of the patriarchs, with the patriarchs of the faith and with the prophets. It's going to be, a, it was a great constant hope of the people of God of, in, in Israel's time. It's our great constant hope of the prophets. It's really something that we look forward to in, in the passage in the Bible that you can read on your own, meditate, is from Isaiah 25, starting in verse 6. Isaiah 25, 6. We read it a lot here, actually, in worship, because it's one of my favorite passages. And so, but it says this, And the Lord of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet for all peoples on this mountain. All peoples around the world. A banquet of aged wine, choice pieces with marrow, and refined aged wine. And on this mountain, he will swallow up the covering, which is over all peoples, even the veil, which is stretched out over all nations. He will swallow up death for all time. And the Lord God will wipe tears away from all faces, and he will remove the reproach of his people from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. This is where the book of Revelation gets some of its imagery from, by the way. And, continuing, it will be said in that day, behold, this is our God for whom we have waited that he might save us. This is the Lord for whom we have waited. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. That's what we're looking forward to. But the problem is there's going to be a great tragedy on that day, and there's going to be great blessings. There's going to be a lot of great things happening on that day, that final day. There's going to be a great tragedy because Jesus makes it really clear that these people should not be assuming that they're going to get to go to the party. I mean, many people who thought so, apparently they thought they had a right to get in, in the storyline. But they're going to be mourning and suffering outside, and Jesus even says, you're going to look on. You're going to see from hell the glories of heaven, adding to their suffering. There's not going to be a second chance. The second chance is right now. It's hearing Jesus today. It's the second chance. But there's also going to be a great surprise blessing on that final day because it's going to include many people you wouldn't expect. First of all, the greatest surprise, of course, to the original hearers would be, you know what? It's going to include people from all over the world, all these different people groups, all these different tribes and languages and tongues. They're going to come like those birds earlier and rest in the branches. They're going to come from the north and the south and the east and the west. There's going to be people that you thought are like, the last people on the earth that are going to be invited to the kingdom and they're going to be in the front of the line because they put their faith in Jesus Christ. You see, there's going to be people coming to this banquet. There's going to be people coming from Ecuador. There's going to be people coming from China. There's going to be people coming from India. There's going to be people coming to this party from Congo. There's going to be people coming from Poland, from Morocco, any place you name. God has his people in those places, and they're going, to be at the, they're going to be at the banquet. And it was prophesied long ago, consistently throughout the prophets, that there would be a gathering of God's elect from the peoples of the whole world. Psalm 107, even as we read this morning, I'll give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His loving kindness is everlasting. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from the hand of the adversary and gathered from the lands, from the east and the west and from the north and the south. And then Jesus closes in summary with these last hard truths in verse 30. So some will be first and last will be first and some will first will be last. And he references this another proverbial way of just saying there's going to be a great reversal of fortune on that day. You see, because many who thought they were up front aren't even going to get in. And people that those people thought would never get in are actually the ones that are in the front of the line. So Jesus is very clear about entering. There's only one way in, him. No other way in. And he's very clear about being rejected. Thank God for his clarity. I mean, wouldn't you rather know the truth than just simply be confused about what's in your own head and what other people tell you in, your, in our culture about how you get into heaven? And so after looking at ourselves, um, we have to inform other people who might be ignorant of Jesus' words here. You know, we shouldn't assume and let people assume that, you know, you're just saved and you're going to get into the kingdom on that day. Because a lot of people think that just because they hang around Christian churches, they're getting in. Some people think that just because they're familiar with Jesus and the Bible and maybe Christian morals and values, 
that somehow, oh, that'll get me in. But we actually have to believe and trust in Jesus as the Son of God, who he said he was. And we have to believe and trust only in him and what he did when he was, said he was be crucified for our sins in our place. Let's stop trusting in ourselves and our works. We have to believe in Jesus that he was raised from the dead for our justification before the Father. We have to be born again by the Holy Spirit. Jesus taught that. That's not just something, you know, people made up a while ago, a few decades ago. No, Jesus said you have to be born again. You have to be born again by the Holy Spirit. You have to have a true faith and live out that reality as a disciple of his. Well, this Messianic banquet is coming, and it's going to be a great banquet because all the patriarchs will be there. It'll be fun to interview them, talk to them, fellowship with them. All the prophets are going to be there. Fun to talk to them as well. I hope you're looking forward to it. It's going to be a grand party, and I hope you have a lot of eagerness in your soul for it, and that you take something like Isaiah 25, oh, and you just meditate on that. Just take Isaiah 25. Pray about that this week until you get excited about the party. Because then you'll be optimistic about the kingdom. Because Jesus said that the kingdom is growing and is soon going to take over the whole world. And our job as the church is to be resolute in urging others to enter that kingdom right now and enjoy its benefits just like we're enjoying them. Well, Jesus is not done teaching about the kingdom, so the third topic is the pivotal event that's coming up. It's his cross and resurrection, and that's what we read about next in verses 31 and following. He gets told about a plot by Herod Antipas, and uh, Jesus talks about his destiny, and, and then he speaks very bluntly about the well-deserved reputation of this town called Jerusalem. Uh, it's filled with a bunch of people who are apostates currently, and historically, that's their reputation. So we read in verses 31, at that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, get away from here, Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, go and tell that fox, behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. That is dripping with sarcasm. I hope you see. But perhaps one of the most interesting passages here is that uh, these are some friendly Pharisees. Where do they come from? I mean, it seems like every time we read in the Bible, the Pharisees are always these nasty people. But apparently, there are some friendly ones left, and we finally get to meet them. Maybe they're actually followers of Jesus, or maybe they're just sympathetic to his cause to some degree. But it's unique in Luke's gospel that we, we come across this. But it's a good reminder that not all Pharisees were bad. I mean, if you go way back in their history when that group was formed and what they were supposed to be doing, I mean, it's all pretty good stuff, their job in teaching people. It's just at Jesus' point in time, it's not that way anymore. And most of them were opposed to Jesus because he threatened their power. Well, anyway, these nice Pharisees warned Jesus of the rumor that's going around that Herod, this is Herod Antipas, that he's got a plot out to kill Jesus just like he killed John the Baptist. Now, we don't know if the rumor is true, that Herod was out to do this or not, or how true it was, but Jesus' popularity at this point, a couple years into his ministry, it's probably getting a little bit disruptive to Herod and his plans, anyway. And earlier, when Herod heard about Jesus and the success of his ministry, he was, he was pretty concerned and actually quite afraid because Jesus was getting all these disciples and gaining all this. So earlier, we studied in Luke chapter 9, for example, we read this in Luke 9. Now Herod, the Tetrarch, heard of all that was happening, and he was greatly perplexed because it was said by some that John, John the Baptist, had risen from the dead, and by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had arisen again. And Herod said, I myself had John beheaded. But who is this man about whom I hear such things? And he kept trying to see him. Of course, Jesus wouldn't let him see him. Oh, Herod will see him someday. And Jesus responds, or Jesus uh, is urged by these Pharisees to, to leave the area. But regardless, you know, Herod would see Jesus finally. He would see him during the execution because he was involved in it. As we read in Acts chapter 4, who was all involved? The kings of the earth took their stand, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly in this city there were gathered together against thy holy servant Jesus, whom thou didst anoint, both Herod 
Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever thy hand and thy purpose had predestined to occur. Herod would see him, and we'll talk about that when we get to that part of the storyline. But Jesus responds to these pharisaical supporters with courage and confidence to the contrary. And so he's not running away from Herod. In fact, he's got his own words for Herod. This is an insult, right? Jesus insults Herod and he says, oh, Herod, yeah, he's just a little fox. I have a fox that runs through my yard every night. Yeah, yeah, they don't do much, okay? You know, it's not a big deal. Well, that's Herod. So he's like this little deceiver, this little destroyer. That's Jesus' opinion of him. Yeah, he doesn't think much of Herod. And he's of minimal importance in the scheme of things. And so Jesus declares that he's just going to keep doing what he's going to do. He's going to keep on teaching. He's going to keep on preaching. He's going to keep on healing. He's going to keep on casting out demons. And, I mean, how instructive Jesus is in his response to this. And it ought to teach us how to have more confidence and courage in our mission task because, you know, I don't know how often it is that we hear this voice out there that's spoken all the time about, how we have to put safety first in doing mission. I don't think Jesus did that. And there's this hyper-responsiveness in the Christian communities to concerns that might be happening. When people who are really visionary and want to go get the mission done, all these people who have a non-optimistic view of the kingdom try to hold them back. See, those Pharisees, while they were friendly and nice to Jesus and sure they had a general concern for his welfare, they didn't see it. Only Jesus saw it. And he said he's just going to keep on going until he gets to where he's going. And where is he going? We already read that. He's going to Jerusalem. And he's got something to do there when he gets there. And so he uses this common idiom, today and tomorrow on the third day. It's very similar to our expression. We would say, day after day. And he's only going to stop when he gets to his goal. There's this divine purpose and destiny awaiting him in Jerusalem. And you see, because Jesus is confident, Herod is not in control. You know, all those political people, they think they control things. They don't. God controls this world. And that's what kept Jesus going, humanly speaking, in that sense. And so he confidently continues his ministry. In verse 33, it's this clear prediction about his death on the cross. He's resolved to finish the mission. He's going to go to Jerusalem, and he's going to die the fate of all the prophets. Deuteronomy 18 talks about the prophet who would come, and more than a prophet, speaking about the Messiah, speaking about Jesus, and that's where he's going to die. Because that's where all good prophets die. In Jerusalem, at the hands of the people that they're serving, that are supposed to listen to them, those are the people that kill you. And so he, we read about the reputation of the city in verses 34 to 35. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Behold, your house is forsaken, and I tell you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So God sent many prophets over the centuries to his people throughout history, and many of them were murdered. And we read about that earlier. Jesus had even harsher things to say earlier in Luke's gospel. And even in Jerusalem, the capital city, and as such, Jerusalem represents the whole nation, and Jesus' point is this is the well-known character of this city. Oh, the people there? They probably think, oh, this is a great city. Jesus doesn't think it's that great of a city because they just kill prophets. And, uh, and that's what they're doing to him. And he says he longed to shelter the city and the people and to comfort them with salvation. As the wisdom saying goes, he desired to shelter them under his wing. The wings of the care of the Messiah. It's his city, as one commentator put it, of unrequited love. But they've rejected his offer and his love and his protection. They've rejected his messiahship. They've rejected his salvation for these past two years, and eventually they would just kill him off like they killed off the rest of the prophets. No big deal. And their reputation then would continue after killing Jesus. This is who this city is. 
In fact, at the end of Stephen the Martyr's speech, which you can read in Acts chapter 7, but the very end of his speech, you know, he's being martyred because, well, if you just read his speech, it's all Acts chapter 7. It sounds like Jesus is talking. Maybe it's because, you know, he looked up at heaven and saw him. But as he gives this speech, at the very end, Stephen says this to the people, these religious leaders. He says, you men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit, you are doing only what your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, talking about Jesus Christ, whose betrayers and murderers you have become. You who received the law as ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. What do you think the next thing is that happened? All right, everybody pick up a stone. They killed him. He's dead. He's in glory. Well, Jesus pronounces here a prophecy of judgment upon Jerusalem that Yahweh, again, is going to abandon his people. It's going to be like another exile. They thought the exiles were all over. Well, here comes another one. And so just like in Jeremiah 12, as it said, I have forsaken my house. I have abandoned my inheritance. I have given the beloved of my soul into the hand of their enemies. That's how the prophet, God through the prophet Jeremiah describes the exile way back. Jesus says their house is being left desolate again. And it refers not just to the city, but to all the Jewish tradition and heritage. Jeremiah later in chapter 22, verse 5 says, but if you'll not obey these words, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, this house will become a desolation. This is what Jesus is quoting. And we'll discuss this much more when we get to the end of Luke, because it comes up in much, much greater detail. For a preview, you can just... Flip ahead to Luke 19.41 and look for yourself here. I'll read it to you in a second, Luke 19.41. But it's only going to be about 40 years later after this in our storyline, Jerusalem gets destroyed. And it confirms what Jesus just said. Luke 19.41. And when he approached, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they've been hidden from your eyes, for the days shall come upon you when your enemies will throw up a bank before you and surround you and hem you in on every side and will level you to the ground and your children within you. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. When the eternal Son of God, who became man, the divine Messiah, the Davidic Messiah, came and visited you and preached the kingdom and performed signs of the kingdom and told you how to get in the kingdom. It would be a sign on that day that what Jesus of Nazareth spoke about when he walked the earth was really true. That he was the Messiah. And that salvation is only in Jesus. And ever since that day, it's been, as the scriptures speak, the time of salvation for other peoples of the world. And Romans chapter 11 says it's only going to be at the very end of the present age that we see any kind of a large-scale conversion of Jewish people back to Jesus Christ and the gospel. And after they kill him, Jesus is saying they're not going to see him again until his glorious return. And at that time, they're going to be forced to say the words of Psalm 118, which he quotes here. And of course, these words get quoted a lot of places in Scripture. Later on in Luke, we'll see in the triumphal entry they get quoted. It's ironic that they're quoted there. It has a double reference that really that's the final offer. Because after that, when he comes back, he'll be mourning over his coming in judgment at the final day. So the pivotal event in the kingdom of God is coming up, coming up pretty soon in the gospel according to Luke. The pivotal event is when Jesus dies for the sins of his people and he's raised to life again. That's the pivotal event of the kingdom. The climactic event of the kingdom, of course, is when Jesus returns and he reigns in righteousness forevermore. In Revelation chapter 1, Verse 7, it says, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. Even so, amen. Again, in our passage today, Christians should really be optimistic about the kingdom, because Jesus was. 
and he taught it, and he's overseeing it, and he's making sure it's happening. And we should be resolute in urging others to enter the kingdom through the narrow door, through Jesus Christ. He's the only way in. But once you enter, it's just filled with wonderful benefits, and we enjoy them now, and we're looking forward to the day when the great banquet comes. The kingdom of God is here, and we should enter it, we should find joy in it, we should find triumph in it. The kingdom of God is not small any longer. It's huge. It's reaching the, far, the, the farthest points of the earth to the people groups on the very fringe. Fulfillment is happening. The kingdom of God is not weak either. It's taking over the world in glorious conquest. And we see that fulfillment happening. Our role as the church and as a church is to be optimistic and opportunistic with Jesus' gospel of the kingdom. And so today in this passage, I hope also what you've seen is that Jesus really gave us this broad survey of the kingdom. From its inauguration, in a sense, when he came preaching it in its new form, all the way to the consummation when he's coming back in glory in its final form. Well, let me pray for us. Lord God, Lord Jesus, our Savior, we at Calvary Church want to be more optimistic about your kingdom. And we confess that we give in to our flesh, that we give in to negativity so much that we don't read and focus on the scriptures and what you teach us. And we ask that you would bring that about and forgive us for that pessimism and bring us into a greater optimism so that we can see the world as you see it. And that you would empower us to be more resolute in urging others to enter the kingdom and to know that people can freely enter through you, Lord Jesus, and find the forgiveness of their sins, and that by faith and trust in you have them completely removed and experience the power of the Spirit in their life, testifying to that freedom and to the entrance into the kingdom. We ask that you would enlarge our vision, that we would understand the kingdom's not small, that the kingdom is not weak, but the kingdom is large, and it's growing, and it's powerful, and that we would come to see correctly, and that we would bless you, Lord Jesus, for who you are as the all-powerful Savior of the world. And we pray this for your glory. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Daniel.